I want to continue to encourage you as we read through the community Bible experience. We're, we're now five weeks in, so this is week six, seven, and eight are coming up. We end on Easter. Uh, this has been fun. I've really enjoyed this. I hope it's been refreshing to you. I keep, keep hearing good things. If you're behind, just keep at it. If you're on track, good work. No matter what you're doing, if you're reading it, you're doing a blessed thing. You're doing a blessed thing, picking up God's word and opening it. We're doing a blessed thing by reading it together. It won't return void. So keep at it. Good work. This morning, we're going to get right into it. and We're going to look in the book of Matthew, which was last week's reading, the entire book of Matthew. Um, and in a moment, we're going to look at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. We'll take it in uh, three little sections to kind of break it up. Uh, and we'll move fairly quickly through it, but we'll kind of get the point there and then make some heads or tails of it. We're looking at kind of big picture stuff as we do this, not getting too deep into the details. But as you read the book of Matthew, one of the things that, that particularly the, this community Bible experience does, I think very well, it has these great one or two page introductions to kind of help you pick out some of the themes as you read through it very quickly. Well, we have to admit, this is much quicker than most of us probably would read scripture at one time, but it's a good thing. And so you'll see that um, as, as the introduction pointed out, the book of Matthew, if you read it this week, it's cataloged into or sep- separated into five what we call discourses. The, read the introduction, you can see exactly what each of those is about. It bullet points those out for you. But if you recognize the book of Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish crowd or people who would know the law, it seems to have that in the background. And that five number is significant because it's also then putting this sort of over or aiming towards the five books of the law, the Torah, the book, the law of Moses, and, and showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of that, even in the broad structure, not just the details of the book. It's right there through the whole thing. And you can see that Jesus is then compared both to Israel's history and to Moses, particularly at points. So Moses, for instance, goes out into the wilderness for 40 years. So does Jesus goes for 40 days. And you see some parallels to that. The, the people are taken to the promised land across the Jordan River and, and live out essentially uh, God's promise as with that law as their path forward, as the marker for when the Messiah would come. And Jesus himself goes to the, the Jordan and is baptized and is able to be the fulfillment of that law. And you see these themes playing out. Jesus, or Moses was the inauguration, if you will, of Israel. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the new Israel, the new covenant now, the fulfillment of the law that Moses is sort of superimposing this over so we can see the big picture of why Jesus is here. Read the introduction. If you didn't already, you get a little bit more of that. And then as you read the book of Matthew, if you haven't already, you kind of begin to see the big structure and the details both working together. This morning, we're going to look at, at particularly the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Uh, and Jesus is preparing for his ministry in these 40 days of fasting, getting ready for what's to come. And he is tested by the devil. We want to see the big moments. Let's not just focus on the details. Could we, we could spend a few weeks on each of these particular points. But I, I want to point out one of the interesting things as you look at the, the broad picture, this just, as I finished Matthew this morning, I had just a couple pages left. You see when he's in the wilderness that he has to stand up uh, to these tests that, that Satan brings him. I found it interesting as I read the end of Matthew, you can see themes that keep popping up. Uh, Jesus, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what's coming up, 
He's, he's essentially tempted in some similar ways there. The second time he goes to pray, he says, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's still tempted to step away. But he says, No, I'm obedient. I'm obedient. And you see that theme running throughout. The obedience to the will of the father. But he has tested and he has tried on that. And the desert, uh, it, the fasting in the desert is the beginning of that testing of putting it all together. Now, I want to make a couple notes before we read the text, and I want to make them quick, because we, we have a character that comes into play when Jesus is tested, the one doing the testing. Uh, that It says the devil in the text. The slanderer is how that gets translated, if you were to translate it. And let me be clear this morning, I don't preach on the devil. We're just bringing it up for a short while. I preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're only mentioning him for a little bit, and I don't even like to, but he's there in the text. We better make note of it. We better make note of the fact that he's trying to trip us up too. And he sends people to try and do the same thing. So the slanderer does not have God's best interest in mind. I think we can be clear about that. We can see that very clearly here. But he's very deceptive in how he's going to go about his ways. He was created by God as good because God doesn't create things that aren't. Sin is just a perversion of that which is good. And Satan gave in in a great big way. Sin in its basic essence is our desire to be like God. And so when we make decisions that are contrary to God's will, we are making a decision to take on the place of God is what we're doing. Satan has clearly done that in a very big way. One of the deceptions that I think still lurks out there and probably will until the culmination of all things and the return of Christ is the belief that Satan is kind of co-equal with God. People still believe this. And sometimes we can fall into the trap of believing that because I remember back in the 90s, the yin and the yang symbol, you know, was very popular. This light and darkness counterbalances each other. And we like the idea of balance. So we kind of tend to think that. And I think by osmosis, we kind of take in some of what culture provides to us about light and dark. So karma, for instance, is a great principle that people seem to like. I don't think it's a great principle. I don't think it's reality, but you reap what you sow is the concept. Um, and so the, the idea kind of persists out there in our culture because we like justice, especially when good things happen to us and bad things happen to other people who are bad, right? Because we're not bad. I mean, none of us in the room are, right? But it would happen to other people. And so we like karma, that if I do good things, good things will happen to me. And if pe- other people do bad things, well, they'll get their just desserts at some point. Now, the whole idea of karma is not actually good, bad, and that's a whole other thing because you have to have some other source to say it's good or bad. They're just kind of equal forces. But the way that this gets popularized is in things like Star Wars, right? In our culture and those sorts of things where we have light and dark and they're competing against each other and they're co-equal forces. And we start to buy into that idea and we're not sure who's going to win. That's not at all what we're presented in scripture. God is God and Satan is not. Let's just be clear about that. Satan wants you to think he's as powerful, but he's not. Yes, he's powerful. We get that in scripture, but he is not God, never will be. And not even close, not even in the same category because he's a created being and God is uncreated. God is over all. But Satan not only doesn't have God's best interest in mind, he doesn't have yours or mine in mind either, nor do any of his demons. They don't want good for us. And when he comes to Jesus, his one singular goal is to just trip him up once. That's all he needs to do. He does not have the best interest of God in mind. And he will use whatever means he can to trip him up. 
And Jesus comes as fully God and fully human. And he realizes that and realizes this is his chance to try. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tested. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 is one of those key passages that shows us why this matters. I'll read it. It's not on the screen. It says, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So he could, in fact, take on the penalty of sin because he didn't give into it and release us from it. That's good news this morning. That's what we're hearing. And this is the beginning, Jesus' preparation to do that work. And so let's hear Matthew 4. If you're following along, it'll be on the screen, but you can follow along in the book or uh, version if you're using that. Let's just read 1 through 4. It starts with this. Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first temptation, Satan is trying to trip him up, essentially to defy the will of God. You've been out in the desert for 40 days, clearly hungry, any of us would be. You've put in your time, Jesus. You have the power to do it. Just use your power to do this. But Jesus recognizes that this would actually not be the will of God to use that power in such a selfish way or a way that is not for the, the main purpose of why he's here. Satan is saying, why should you suffer though? You put your time in. Be comfortable. For goodness sakes, you're God's son, right? He's giving him that kind of a, a temptation. And Jesus responds, no, the will of the Father is the only way. That's the way I'm going to respond. And we know Jesus has the power. As you continue to read through the book of Matthew, you recognize he feeds the 4,000, he feeds the 5,000. He can create and multiply food. That's not the issue. The will of the Father is his will. He's on a mission of rescue and renewal. He says, that's my focus. It's not just to fill my belly with food right now. The food will come. I'm preparing in the wilderness. That's what I'm supposed to do. The second temptation comes, verses 5 through 7. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's using Psalm 91. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So here's some deception coming in. All right, Jesus, you're going to use the scriptures. I will too. That's God's word after all. Here's the scripture. Jump off. He'll send his angels. Aren't you going to obey the scriptures? That's what God says he's going to do. Doesn't he love you that much that he would rescue you if you jumped off? And Jesus says, let's not pit God against God here, basically. Don't put God to the test. Don't put him in that kind of a situation. Anytime you test God, it results in bad news. It's not going to go well. Third temptation, starting at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. That's pretty overt all of a sudden, isn't it? And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and, attempt, and attended him. 
So the temptation here is Satan is, is using deception again. Look, I own all this. The world's here. This is the thing you came to rescue, right? These are the people you love, right? If you love them that much, all you have to do is one time. That's implied by the language there. One time, just bow down to me. It's all yours. We'll take a shortcut to the kingdom. Done. You can love the people sooner and and rescue them sooner. Satan so badly wants to be on equal footing with God and throw off his plans. This is what he uses. And Jesus says, you're not God. You never will be. I will not bow down. We can see here that Jesus is victorious in the desert. Israel was not victorious in the desert. Jesus now is. He's victorious in the desert. He's victorious as a human, although he's God and human. Yes, he's victorious as a human without relying on the divine power to overcome. But one thing we should note about this is he's victorious in a way that we can be too. Because verse 1 points out something very important. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit is on him when he's baptized. He goes into the wilderness. And it doesn't then tell us now the Spirit left. No, he was led into the, the wilderness by the Spirit. The Spirit was with him. This is where the power comes from to actually accomplish this. And if you step back even further, and don't just look at the history of, of Israel particularly, but of the history of humanity, starting from Adam, I think it's, it's a very good contrast that I read this week from Warren Wiersbe. He says, look at this even further out. He says, just as the first Adam met Satan, and of course Paul calls Jesus the second Adam, he says, so the last Adam met the enemy. Adam met Satan in a beautiful garden, but Jesus met him in a terrible wilderness. Adam had everything he needed, but Jesus was hungry after 40 days of fasting. Adam lost the battle and plunged humanity into sin and death, but Jesus won the battle and went on to defeat Satan in more battles, culminating in his final victory on the cross. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he can succeed because that power is there with him. He didn't have to rely on the divine power, and so he models that for us that we can have that life in the Spirit too. Jesus is victorious in the desert. He's victorious in the desert. Why? So he can be victorious over death. That's something you and I can't do. But in Christ, we are. In Christ, we're given that life. Jesus does what only God can do, but what we humans needed because he was victorious in the desert, then he's able to be victorious over death and hand that victory to us. And the question becomes, is that victory my story? Have I given in to that victory? Am I allowing Jesus to to win that in my life? That I could resist not only temptation, but be given life and life eternal. How is that evidenced then in my life if, if that victory is my story? Jesus' victory over the power of death, that gives us the power to live life. Not just in the future, but right now. Is that victory in you today? It's the presence of the Spirit, but it's also the power of the Word working through us. And we see that evidenced when Jesus is tempted in the desert. He's powered by the Spirit. He's powered by the Word. Now, uh, I want to make two points out of this. Um, It was about a year ago, I think, uh, I was talking to a couple of our kids, and one of them said, you know, sometimes I get hangry. 
which was curious to me because I didn't know they knew that word. And it was curious to me because I thought, how do you get hangry? But it didn't matter. When I do premarital counseling, one of the new acronyms I've found is HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. These are preventable things that sometimes make us act unkind towards other people or sometimes seek fulfillment in ways that are unhealthy. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you'll try and fill those needs. That's the problem. They're preventable. Well, now, as a, as a culture, we, tend, we have combined two of those into hangry, right? And, and I even get hangry sometimes, if I want to admit it. Uh, we're people who, who uh, we eat, you know, breakfast and second breakfast and 11s and lunch and lunch and, and all the stuff like hobbits do, right? And we have snacks throughout the day. And if we don't have a snack just within a couple hours, sometimes we get hangry and we make marketing commercials about it from Snickers and people like that. Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days. And I love how the King James says it. It says, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered. That's a nice way to say it, isn't it? I think the most I fasted is maybe four or five days. And I was hungry after four or five days. I don't know if you've tried that or more. 40 days is the limit by which a human ought to fast from food. You are hungry after 40 days. And I can't speak from experience. And I've never fasted for 40 days. I mean, the temptation for bread alone had to be huge for him just a little bit of bread. What's the harm in just making that for yourself? He was afterward a hungered, but we live in a hangry world where where I think we have preventable issues that prevent us even from entering into that life and giving into temptation too easily. When Stephanie and I were first married, uh, we, we started gaining weight as we moved to a new place and we were cooking and all that stuff that you do when you're first married. And we, we realized after about a year, we're like, we need to stop. We need to slow down here and we need to eat healthier. And so we ended up going on a, a diet plan and, and it was one where it wasn't just a diet, but it trained you how to eat better. We are not victorious completely on eating well, but we've done a lot better over the last now 12 years since we did that. And we eat a lot better. What was interesting is as, as we ate much better food and put that into our body, the byproduct is we felt really good. We felt healthier. We felt like we could think better, move better, have better energy. We live in a hangry world, and I want to tell you this. God's word is food for life. God's word is food for life, and when you take it in, even the challenging parts, even the parts that are hard to understand, you feel better. It nourishes you. It's not just about feelings, but that is one of the one of the things that happens. So the question is this, if God's word is food for life, how's your diet? How's your diet right now? Because we're taking the challenge as a church to obviously read together the New Testament. For some of us, that's easy. For some of us, it's a challenge and that's okay. And we're, we're ingesting probably a lot more of scripture than we would at one time typically. But even on a normal basis, how's your diet? I think a lot of times it's easy to become spiritually malnourished with what we're taking in from God's word. We're not taking in enough spiritual calories to really fuel us in the victory of Christ. And part of that is we don't read the text enough. Some of us do, some of us don't. But, but when we don't read the text enough, we don't know. So Satan is able to come to Jesus and quote scripture. If he didn't know that, I mean, he could have just said, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, I should be able to jump off the temple and that would work. Some of us just don't know. I'll give you a story here. And, and this is not one of my prouder moments, I suppose. But I was early in pastoral ministry. Uh, back, back then, Jesus Messiah by Chris Talman had just come out. We we're singing it in worship. And somebody came up to me after the service. 
And they said, I don't like these contemporary worship songs. It seems like people are just taking theological mishmash and putting together and writing a catchy song. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. What is this business? So that's what he said. That's what's written in the text in the song. Now, here's where I'm not as proud. I didn't know where that text was found either. So we're talking to I know the principle. I couldn't tell you that where exactly that was found. It's 2 Corinthians 5 is where it is. I found out later. I sent him an email. I was like, not only is that a biblical concept, it's almost verbatim. This, the words you sang were almost the exact words of the NIV translation. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. But neither of us knew well enough to know it. Sometimes we just don't know. And we're not nourished by God's word. And here's, here's my humbling question of the week. This is Evan's humbling question of the week. So you can just let it be mine if you don't want it. But you might find it interesting. Am I so spiritually malnourished that the devil knows scripture better than I do? It's a good question, isn't it? Am I so spiritually malnourished that the devil knows scripture better than I do? I don't think he knows it super well. I think he knows it well enough to deceive. I don't want to be that spiritually malnourished. One of the other things, we we sometimes just don't understand what we read in scripture. And we're not taking the time sometimes to understand. That's, that's harder when we're reading these big chunks of scripture, but that's where meeting in groups helps tremendously. To have multiple sets of eyes and different perspectives coming together and saying, well, maybe you're, you're misreading it, or maybe I, I took it this way. Okay, let's explore that a little bit. You can go wrong, but you can also go right doing that. But sometimes we just don't understand. Uh, um, apologist Abdu Murray says God's way should, it, it might transcend reason, but it doesn't defy it. So the more we read the text, the more we can begin to understand about what God is saying in the text. And I remember a professor I had in, in college who, who said, you know what, my grandfather told me, so this is the professor talking, that when you're reading scripture and you don't understand something, the answer is usually within one inch of the text. And I thought, well, this is brilliant. He's going to give us some great principle. One inch of the text is what I was thinking. He goes like this, one inch of the text. <laughs> it's the truth, though. The more we read it, the more we begin to understand. Even the confusing parts become a little bit more illuminated, or even if we're unsettled by those, they become a little less unsettling because we can understand other parts of Scripture that can bring us into God's presence much more easily. We need to be spiritually nourished by that. And finally, we can just misinterpret Scripture because we just don't know it as well. If we don't know it well enough, if we're not taking enough in, uh, we're going to miss the point. Jesus, if you notice, he quotes three Scripture passages from probably one of the most underread books by Protestants and evangelicals. He quotes Deuteronomy three times. How many times have you done that? I haven't done that much. He quotes it three times, just two chapters, by the way, of Deuteronomy. And he does it very effectively. It's not stripped from the context. If you go back and read, and we heard one of them this morning, uh, you begin to see the fullness of what he's actually pointing back to when he quotes those. The whole of scripture matters in spiritually nourishing us and helping us understand and making sure we're getting enough basically spiritual calories in there so that we're not uh, going to give in to temptation so easily. God's word becomes food for life. Now, the alternate of spiritual malnourishment can happen for us. Some of us are oversatiated. We got way too many calories coming in, spiritual calories. And we don't even know what to do with it all. So you might feel like that as we read the community Bible experience. We're in the Bible buffet line and you're holding two plates and they're full, right? You've got way too much to take in. Let me just point out something. uh, If you feel like you're taking in too much, if you look at Jesus, when he goes to prepare, he didn't read a book about it. 
He knew scripture. And then what does he actually do? Actually goes into the desert to prepare. He actually steps out to do God's work, not just being filled and filled and filled and filled and never doing it. And then he goes out to fulfill the mission of the father. Yes, he knows the word, but then he does what it says. And he follows through. And if you feel spiritually oversatiated, like you've been at the buffet too long, get out and do something with the word. Get out and work it out in your life. Yes, we need to read it. We also need to sit in God's presence and be present with God with the relationship. And then we need to do it. We need to do it. What's really fascinating to me is this, this idea of God's word being food for life and the, the power behind it. Uh, uh, Michael Wilkins, a New Testament scholar, he says, if you look at what Jesus does, as powerful as Satan may be and as frail as J- Jesus must be because of extended fasting and the intensity of the temptations, hear this, he says, Jesus vanquishes him with a word. That's the power of scripture being taken in and then worked out in his life. He's not going to give in to the temptation because he knows the call of the father on him. And he's got that relationship developed with the father. The spirit is on him. Those two things are crucial if we're going to resist temptation and live the fullness of life in Christ. Both live out that victory that's been won for us because Jesus was victorious in the desert and Jesus was victorious over death. We've got to take that in and live it out. The second thing I want to point out is that sin's power is broken by the effect of God's word in us. It's broken by that. I was uh, driving a, about an eight-hour car trip with a, a guy who was in seminary when I was in college a bunch of years ago, a friend of mine, and I was commenting on now an emerging T-shirt at the time that said, Satan is a nerd, which they're still out now. They're, they're interesting shirts. I said, boy, I think it'd be fun to get one of those. And he said, but wait a minute. That's not how we should respond to him. He said, and he quoted Jude. I mean, I didn't even know this passage. He quoted Jude, Jude verse nine. It's not even chapter one. It's just verse nine. When you get to Jude, you're going to feel very good in your reading because it'll go by super fast. But it says here, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It's God's job to rebuke you, Satan. I'm not going to say a word slanderous towards you. Let's just recognize the power of sin, uh, the, uh, the sin's power is broken by the effect of God's word. It's got to be broken in us because we're taking in God's word and that's what we're living. We're not giving into temptation and thus sin. And let's remember, the devil is the slanderer, we're not. The devil is the slanderer, we live by the truth. And we, we present it in grace and truth and in love. We don't do it just by using the same means as the devil, fight fire with fire. No, that's not how Jesus did it. That's not how we do it. We let the word come in, break the power of sin in us so that we don't give in to temptation and thus we don't sin. We, we live the truth, we speak it, we show it. Jesus didn't give, to, give in to temptation, but it will overtake you if you don't let God's word sink in. And the results of that are that we end up misusing something that God has created that's good or things that God has created that are good and we turn them bad. We misuse the way God intended them. So simple but good example, uh, God created us to enjoy the world that he created. It's part of the first commandment. God also created sex. It's a good thing. But we can easily come to the conclusion that those are both good, so I should be able to enjoy them whenever I want, wherever I want, however I want. God said, no, there are boundaries. 
there are boundaries to, if you're going to enjoy the good things I have, and when you step outside of those boundaries, you actually ruin those things. They actually don't become good. They become bad. You give in to temptation. Different example, if you want a simpler, less in your face one, would be stewardship and generosity. Right? Sometimes it's easy for somebody to say, I'm going to be a good steward, so they put everything away and they invest it for the rainy day when they can give it away, but they never give it away because I'm being a good steward. The alternate can happen. I'm so generous, I never save anything, right? We have to balance these things out, the good things that God has given us. And when we don't let God's word sink in, the fullness of it, we end up exercising one or the other. Uh, we, enter, we end up entering into things that might be good, but turning them bad, perverting them, turning them upside down. We end up unknowingly sometimes worshiping things that God has created instead of God himself. Self or stuff, those are the things that rise to the surface. And ultimately, we end up missing out on the victory that Christ has given us. Let's just be clear. Jesus is tempted. Tested is kind of the word that it's really using, but tempted in the, des- in the desert. Temptation is not the same as sin. Temptation is really the gateway. It's the door. If we walk through it, that's when we sin. If I set out the chocolate cake right here, right now, and I say, don't eat it, just being tempted is not sinful. But the one of you that comes and eats it, well, then you've crossed the line, right? That's the difference. Jesus didn't cross the line. And if we prepare for God's work, if we take in God's word, if we live into the victory of Christ, putting in enough spiritual calories, basically, through God's word and the power of the spirit, God's presence with us, we are stronger against temptation because God is with us and his word is in us, working through us. We're not going to succumb to those things. We're not going to be taken as fools for those things, just like Jesus isn't. He recognizes the deceit and will not give in. So we are to prepare for God's work, live into that victory of Christ, the word, God's presence living in us. And let Jesus' victory over the power of death give us the power to live life now to its fullest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your victory through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this morning uh, that any deceit that is in our lives, the power of the evil one and his minions would be released for many of us in this room. We pray that the power of sin would be broken in our lives because we are relying on your spirit working in us and your word working through us. And we know that they have power to help us resist the devil to help us resist temptation that comes our way, to stand strong in your word, and to walk in your ways so that we would, in fact, remain faithful to you. When others might fall away, we'd remain faithful to you, and then we would be a testimony to others to come to you and to recognize your good news, to take you in as their Lord and walk forward with you as their Savior. Father, we pray this in your name today. We pray that that power would live in us, that your word would be enlivened in us, and that your spirit goes before us as we leave this place this morning. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.